Hello there, wherever you are, and welcome to On The Record, Off The Cuff album reviews podcast. This evening, we will be having a look at the album Flaunted by Zizig Sputnik. Uh, I have a usual stalwart and I guess co-founder at this, well, co-founder, absolutely, Ian. Hello. And super special guest, and probably fair to say, I don't know, I'm going to use hyperbole that may be completely unfair, but I don't think it is, uh, Zigzag Sputnik's super fan, Greg. Hello, and yes, I probably am. <laughs> <laughs> this album is a little bit a little bit off the beaten track in some ways, particularly compared to what we've done before. It encompasses a lot of slightly different things and coming from a slightly different mindset, which makes it all the more interesting, I think, to talk about and go over. Ian was keen to do this one uh, as well. I think it's a band we probably have chatted about quite a bit in the past. Ian, I think, has a little bit in common with one of the main protagonists in terms of projects, ideas, realisation and all those that sort of skill set. So I am going to pass over to Ian to uh, open proceedings about Flaunt It by Zig Zig Sputnik. <laughs> okay, so Flaunt It was released in 1986 after a major label feeding frenzy. And I think this is to what you were you were uh, alluding. We should probably give some background on Zig Zig Sputnik because, rather unfortunately and unfairly, I would say they've become a bit of a um, a whipping boy and a, a bit of a, a joke band. And I think hopefully, if, as we get through this podcast and start examining things, we're going to prove. Certainly, Greg's going to do his best to do so. But I'm also. Uh, I think we can prove that actually they definitely need reconsidering and yes. they definitely have their place in uh, in popular music uh, history and have actually been far more into influential than perhaps they get their credit for. So just to set the scene, Zig Zig Sputnik was put together by Tony James, who'd been in early days, uh, the, the, the kind of proto-punk scene, he'd been in London SS with uh, Mick Jones from The Clash, and later on he went to be in Generation X with uh, Billy Idol. Um, so he's got a punk pedigree. Uh, Generation X were kind of tipped to be actually bigger than the the Pistols because they could they could actually stay in the same room as each other <laughs> and, and 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 hold things together and and uh, weren't so interested in um, in the more chemical elements of, of things. Uh, but you know they, they they fell apart as these things do, and uh, Billy Idol went off to America and became well a rock star essentially. And Tony James was kind of left in London wondering what to do and rather than just stick another band together and follow the scene of the time do another yet another punk band because punk was on on the wane and there was the kind of post-punk and all that kind of club and dance stuff a new romantic stuff coming in he uh, he came up with a master plan which i i believe took him about <laughs> three or four years to be fair kind of hunting for people and trying to work out what to do next that wouldn't be the same as everyone else was doing and rather than just look at music, he started looking at, at kind of pop culture and things like that, especially uh, movies and uh, graphic novels and uh, and uh, novels and philosophy and, and what have you, and, and kind of envisaged this whole kind of what we now call cyberpunk. I don't think uh, Gibson had even coined the phrase by, by that point, but this kind of Blade Runner-esque aesthetic. And I think in, in one of his interviews or... Uh, one of the common things he trots out is he was trying to think out if he wandered into a 
uh, in a, into a rock club in 100 years' time and the Elvis of the day was up on stage, what would that band sound like? And so, uh, to cut a long story short, this is what Zig Zig Sputnik became. He, he put together a group of people. They basically fed on all this multimedia, movie, pop culture to come up with an aesthetic first and then the music kind of kind of came later. They, I believe, hadn't actually recorded anything except a three-track demo on a, a Porter Sound um, yeah. four-track before the Feeding Frenzy started. One of the other things that's probably useful uh, saying is that Tony James was also in a romantic relationship and living with Magenta Devine at the time, who was a publicist out and out and knew how to play the media game. And between them and the other members, they've just cooked up a, a media storm around things without ever having to do things. You know, and obviously Tony James knew Malcolm McLaren. It's all out of that same playbook about um, hyping things up and, and then adding scarcity, fueling the, the demand and then not letting anyone have anything. So we get to the point where EMI were the successful bidders and an album needed to be paid. And we're walking at this point. Greg, do you want anything to add to the story? Because you, I know you you kind of know this stuff back to front. Um, yeah, well, I, I don't remember it all as well as I used to. But, yeah, I mean, you're broadly accurate. There was a lot. I mean, Tony James has spoken quite a few times about he um, – he called it his cafe years, and he spent a couple of years in London, sat in a cafe, and he, his point was always, he looked, he was looking for a star, he was looking for charisma. You had to look right, uh, and he would say, you know, um, you can you can teach anyone to play an instrument. I, mean, I would be the example of no, you can't, mate. But <laughs> normally, um, he, his argument was, I can teach anyone to play an instrument. I can't make you be a star, and quite literally, Neil Neil X the guitarist, and Martin Degville, the lead singer, both of them, he basically literally plucked off the street and he went, you look cool. Do you want to be in a band? Yeah, okay then. And that was, you know, it was very deliberately based around, can I get together a collection of people that look cool and then we will come up with something. Um, and as you say, yeah, they had a, they had a four-track demo tape and it kind of, Ties back into, uh, you're right, they're definitely a cyberpunk band. They're probably the proto-cyberpunk band. They are what got a lot of it going. And alluding to something that Paddy and I were talking about earlier, um, he's been on record, and as he said, one of the, the sort of the cyberpunky sci-fi bits that they've got is they have movie clips, uh, you know, little bits of, of vocals and, and audio from movies scattered throughout. And that was an accident. They were playing around with a video recorder in, in the Harrow Road, I think they were based. They called it Sputnik HQ. And he'd been playing around on the video recorder and had pressed the wrong button somehow and had crossed over. And on their original master of their demo, he'd started recording lines from The Terminator. Uh, and had played it back and had kind of gone, oh, shit. And then... Oh, but this is brilliant. This is awesome. This is what we want. This is this is the sound we're after. But in the end, their demo tape that they had sort of properly generated wasn't a standard audio tape. It was a video cassette. And they would go into the various record companies. And because we're talking the 80s where you didn't have um, easy access to sort of audio video, video equipment, uh, apparently they would go in and they'd go to a big conference room, play this video, 
everybody in the record companies are now seeing and hearing this this unholy noise. What what is this? This wasn't hidden away in an office somewhere. Then they'd eject the one and only videotape that they had and walk out. So as you say, scarcity. They made it the thing that everyone talked about, but no one can get a copy of. Thus the feeding frenzy, which led to EMI. At the time, it was alleged to be four million yeah. uh, British pounds. Um, I think it was actually about five hundred thousand, which is still yeah. quite a lot of money for the <laughs> oh, for yeah. the eighties. But yes, the hype was uh, fantastic. I mean, it was it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. It, that's what got them going. It also kind of is what bit them in the arse and, and led to their demise yeah, somewhat because the, the you know as we know, especially with tabloid culture, um, they enjoy people, especially celebrities, playing into that. But then when they uh, think that they're getting the upper hand, they turn on them yeah. <laughs> and, and bury them. Absolutely. So so they ended up at EMI, as we said, for not four million, but that was the figure that it, it was a good... I, I saw another interview where Tony James Tony said that what he particularly liked about four million do- uh, pounds is at the time it translated to six million dollars, which That's had right. a nice yes, ring about that. it. He said something like, and I love the six million dollar man, so yeah. we're the six million dollar band. Yes, and he done... Um, <laughs> I mean, he was, the thing is as well, he was um, great with the the glib one-liners yeah. here and there, which, as you say, helped immeasurably. But then after a while, people were going, is he just taking the piss? We can... Well, this is know. the thing. I mean, you know, he's a smart guy. He's got a, a, a first in uh, computer science and mathematics. You That's know, right, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's not a, a, a dummy. There's a lot of calculation going on that. The, the next thing probably to talk about before we get into the track-by-track track on the album is the choice of producer. Now, famously, because of all this hype, they they were punching above their weight in terms of their their demands. They looked at, or they wrote a, basically a list of of people they wanted, uh, including on there, Paddy. I don't know if you're aware, they wanted uh, Prince potentially to produce the album for them. Uh, that would have um, been fascinating. They actually they actually met him. And uh, uh, Prince's reaction was that he could he he could sit, but it was too violent for him to get involved in. That's, I didn't know that in '86. I can see that. That's mm, that's really fascinating. That that gives me something to go away and think about the possibilities of. <laughs> yeah. What would a Prince produced Sputnik have sounded like? Sputnik Prince collaboration is not one that a synergy that immediately <laughs> springs to mind if you can throw people together. But my God, that would have been fun. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, absolutely. But what they did, they actually ended up with is Giorgio Moroder, obviously a composer, producer, film scorer, pop and disco producer, and very well versed in electronics. And I think one of the things we should probably say about this album. So last week or last episode, we were talking about Nine Inch Nails. And we're talking very much about Trent Reznor and his technical abilities and how he'd pieced the, together everything. And it was part of one vision and he was technically competent and a great musician and what have you. This isn't the case here. I think uh, Tony James, for, for all his master plan and what have you, and uh, musical ability, it, it wasn't a one-man project. And I think Giorgio Moroder is probably the most important part of actually pulling that vision together into something that works in, a, in an audio form. There's so much yeah. technical competence going on there. If you look about, look at the production or listen, listen to the production, that hasn't come from people that uh, have like uh, spent a couple of days mucking about on a 
for for Trackwater Studio, and then being let loose in Abbey Road. That has not that has not happened. And due to due to that production and the savviness and sheen, I would contend that it doesn't sound. The main reason it doesn't sound dated is because it's to some degree relatively unique. But on the basis of the production. I think that's a, another reason why it doesn't sound dated because it was so qualitative in what it, how they executed it. Uh, absolutely, I mean that, that is that is one of the things. That, well, it's so great to be talking about this album thirty odd years after. Well, yeah, we get, yeah. get on for 40, 40 years. Um, <laughs> so don't say it like that. We're old. <laughs> I like 30, 30 years. Um, because it doesn't sound dated, and the, the interesting thing is, if you look at some of the contemporary reviews, because it got absolutely slammed by by the press by the time the album actually uh, uh, came out they they kind of lost interest in them as as interesting purveyors of uh, of uh, interesting stories one of the reviews i think from smash hits literally said oh it's all fun and games now but everyone knows it's going to sound so dated in a year's time and you think how could you be so so wrong with that so the other thing we should mention, as we'll touch on as we go through, I think, is another piece of hype genius, which sounds like money-making genius, but it didn't really turn out that way, was the, the, um, Tony James's idea that they should sell advertising space between the tracks on the album, which is, which is brilliant, and it's all part, part of the ethos. Now, the thing about the adverts, and there is an advert between each, between each, each track. Some of them are real adverts. <laughs> Some of them aren't because they couldn't sell quite as many as they had space for but potentially that's the kind of thing that would make something sound dated but i don't know who produced the adverts but they sound like part of the album the uh, production quality is the same as the the rest of the album even the products and the way they're put together sound like they're part of the album it's it's almost like the you know the adverts in verhoven's uh, first robocop they they're tonally completely in keeping with the rest of rest of the piece, and to the extent that I think listening to it this, especially if you're not of our <laughs> years, our advancing years, um, and you're not aware of maybe some of the some of the products, most of the the products that are actually advertised are completely defunct now. So they've passed into that space where actually whether it's a real or advert or or uh, a fake advert really doesn't matter because none of those products are real now or contemporary. You can listen to them just just for the the sound. It's all part of the advert. It's another reason why um, some of the things that people maybe thought would make it dated just just don't. And also, it always shocked me how much you have an album that's part of your sort of listening palette for a few years, and then it's you think, oh, I haven't listened to Flaunt It for three or four years. I must have a listen to that. The adverts, you're so comfortable listening to the adverts. The adverts are so much part of the art, albeit in theory unintentionally. But again, that's why they're part of the art sort of thing. That it really works. How, as we do the track by track, some of the ad, where the advert finishes and the song starts is the perfect. It's it's almost it's not a musical segue, but it's a thematic segue. It's a, a trope. Uh, no, it's not a trope. But yes, yeah, like a thematic segue, and it. And it chimes beautifully as this sort of archival artifact piece. All the more for it, from a almost. A, they're not musical, but they are musical. It's so strange. I think Ian Ian kind of hit the nail on the head there. That 
yeah, uh, you know, a lot of people won't necessarily realise they're adverts anymore. But tonally, they are absolutely part of the same oh, yeah. piece of work. And um, I might be, I might be wrong, but I, I think there was probably a little bit more going on in their heads when they put that album together. Um, because yes, the way you flow from a track to an advert to the next track is almost seamless. And depending on what streaming or listening service you're using or what CD you've got of the album will depend on where those adverts are regarded as being part of, is it the end of one song? Is it the beginning of the next song? Is it a track on its own? I mean, I've got different variations of these albums where all three of those things have happened. Um, And it does, it becomes part of, it's... um, I know we're kind of going to go through as a a track by track, but as a kind of taking a a broad overview of it, for me, that was one of the big things for Zig Zig Sputnik. The thing I fell in love with was this idea that there was a, at the risk of sounding horribly pretentious, an oral, there was a soundscape. There was Mm -hmm. this big soundscape. And it wasn't just a drummer, a guitarist, and a keyboardist and singing. It was, I mean, the, the beginning of... I think Love Missile F-111, has got the these big um, sort of loud gongs, which are from the soundtrack of um, A Clockwork Orange. Mm. Um, you've got quotes from the Rocky IV trailer. You've got quotes of Terminator coming in. But they're not kind of... They're not just laid on top because it sounds cool. They become as integral a part to the noise that we are listening to as any of the instruments, as anything else. And I think the adverts were... <laughs> I'm sure they'll have gone and got the adverts first because that gives them money. But then when they've got that advert, they can go, where is this fitting in? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which song would this go best in? I mean, for me, the one that I always remembered the most was um, L'Oreal Studio Yes. Line, create your look. <laughs> um, and that, I mean, that was on TV for... Yeah. yeah I suspect the budget that L'Oreal spent on that advert was probably more than got spent on the album itself. Um, <laughs> and when you actually listen to that um, studio line advert, there's um, reverb, there's all sorts of um, a, a repetitive voicing going on. And you listen to it and you go, that's just happened in that song. And that's yeah. going to happen in the next song. Absolutely. And you do some nice thing. Did they look at the studio line advert and go, right, lads, we want an album a lot like that. Because um, it, it sometimes feels, I, I don't think it was, but do you know what I mean? It, it's that it does all tie together and it it, it works brilliantly. Um, and it, like I said, it, for me, it's this one big soundscape and the fact that technically it's an advert. There is an undeniable oneness about it. Yeah. yeah. It just flows all the way through, I think. And I, I think that that's a, that's the thing I, I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about the kind of critical place of, the, of this album. Critics don't talk about it in the same way that they revere other bands or artists it's kind of written off as this kind of cheap hokey ridiculous thing you know they don't talk about music concrete which they would do for you know the art of noise or craft work or these kind of things which are very much you know wading in the same same pool here they they don't use those 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 kind of terms i I remember there was one of these um talking heads kind of uh, TV shows where, you know, they, oh, do you remember 1986 kind of thing? And they did a bit on Zig Zig Sputnik. And 
David Quantic pops up because he is, has to be by law on every single Talking Heads thing. <laughs> um, because you know, if you want to rent a gobshite, you 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 go to David Quantic. No, actually, normally I think he's he's pretty good, he's pretty spot on. But his review of, uh, of the Sputnik thing, I thought this is classic lazy. Uh, what can I say funny about it kind of thing. He talks about the advert and the, and he's, the adverts particularly. He says, oh, the, th- the thing is, the adverts stick out and you listen to the album, it's all very well, but you'd, you, you've heard the L'Oreal advert 40 times and all of us, you know, and it's, it's like how wrong can you get it to my mind it is like watching robocop and saying oh those advert bits don't yeah. work i mean they don't work in robocop too because the people that made that made that had no idea what the film was about and they just put them in because the last one did but they are a part of parts of the, of the town so i feel this album has been hard done by not just at the time but in terms of the the kind of historic reappraisal i don't think that's happened yet it staggers me that people can look back and entirely miss the point as a musician, you look at something a certain way, but this is not musically. It's not hiding what it is. It's about an idea. It's about a concept. It's about a bit of a blag, and it's about not just the album. It's more about, as I say, that band, that concept, the time, how they executed it, how they brought it to market, the whole thing, the use of the way I sort of think about the idea of create nothing but make people want it. It's almost like a Hitchcockian attitude towards horror. It's the stuff that you can't see, which compels you. Mm. Uh, It's the same thing. It's the stuff that never happens. It's the stuff that you desperately want. Absolutely. And and on that kind of wider point, I think something that's often overlooked is the tongue-in-cheek and the the absolute sense of irony in which the, some of these things have been put together. This hasn't been put together by somebody that believes all this <laughs> this hype and believes the thing. That it's, I mean, it's it's art and it's knowing. And the people that take it on, on face value, I yeah. mean, you just have a look at yourself and try and think a little bit deeper in future. <laughs> well, I mean, Tony James, has, he's gone on record as saying, I, I'm sure you both remember, he, he was very famous. He had a T-shirt that said, Fleece the World. Yeah. And um, he has admitted, you know, subsequently that he had been perhaps a bit naive and, and thought everyone would, he thought everyone else was in on the joke. Yeah. Um, that he was creating this thing. Don't take it too seriously. It's some fun, but it's spectacle. And, yeah. Um, and he, was, he said he was quite upset because in the end, people were saying that he was trying to fleece the fans. And he kept going, no, I love the fans. It's the record industry I'm fleecing. When it yeah. comes to fleece the world, I'm aiming it at the fat cats, the capitalists, you know, the big record companies. And you're right, it's it's a shame too many people took it all far too literally, far too sort of straight-faced. When, yeah, it was always being done with a bit of a, a, a grin on his face and all of their faces. And they were all there, there just going... Look at us. We're rock stars. How cool is this? You know, <laughs> literally, I've just been pulled off the street and some bloke put a guitar in my hand and said, go on. Uh, it, it's, it was great. And it's a shame that, especially at the time, too many people didn't recognise that there was a nod and a wink to the audience because they took it far too seriously. Um, and a lot of the news articles that came out were, again, quite negative because they couldn't accept that maybe these guys were having a bit of a joke. and you know, fleece the world is aimed at the, as I say, at the record companies, not the fans. It was, um, it was a shame that it got taken that seriously. Because yes, it, 
has prevented people sort of recognising some of the very clever stuff that they did. Absolutely. Um, well, I think we've probably set the scene nicely. Well, all I was going to ask was uh, about when you first heard the album or got in, or how you sort of came across it, because I, I had to think, and I, I can't remember with any particular clarity, I have a feeling, which again is, is to, to just mention the artwork on the album, I will have seen this cassette and gone, ooh, what the <laughs> hell is that? It looks a bit like the cover of Starfleet because that, that robot <laughs> looks like the Diex robot. And then I put it on. I can remember listening to it early on and thinking, wow, this is so different. from." And then for me, this was like... Uh, pre-Prince. <laughs> so there's, a, there's two very distinct parts of my musical life, pre and post discovering Prince. But yeah, it, it just, just the fact that it sounded entirely different, but was very listenable. And the thing about me was when I listened to it, I had no real concept of what he was trying to do or wasn't trying to do. I would have been uh, 13 at the time, throwing it, bouncing everything on its head. Not that I had much experience to apply to these things at the time. I liked it because I thought it sounded fucking really interesting and good. So there is that too as a product. It's actually really good. Yeah. But yeah. So when did you, I mean, Greg, when, when did you discover I have, the Sputnik? I have no idea. I, <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. No, no, but I have no idea in that um, I am not aware of um, a period of my life when Zig Zig Sputnik wasn't, part of the soundtrack to my to my life to everything that I kind of do it's always going on in the background I just, honestly I cannot I cannot remember um as you say I will have been I will obviously it'll have been when it came out in in 86 so I was 14 15 I guess again yes I remember seeing the album cover and I can't remember actually whether Starfleet had actually aired in the UK by then it probably had I think so it you might have done because you're right it looks a lot like the Diex from yes. Starfleet. Um, and I think, and, and going back a little bit, I suppose, mid-80s, at that age, we were a lot less <laughs> sort of global. So mm. suddenly being opened up to, uh, I mean, anime wasn't a term I'd ever heard before. So I, I didn't understand that what I was looking at, or, or indeed, you know, Starfleet, was this kind of stuff, amazing stuff that comes from Japan, which has a very different um, sort of design aesthetic. Mm. Um, I just knew it was different and kind of cool. Uh, and, you know, and as you say, yeah, um, I can appreciate the album now and appreciate the cleverness that was going on. Primarily for me, I can remember hearing it and thinking that it was cool. Um, I liked the sound of it. It was kind of grabbing me in. And I loved, um, still do, I love little samples going on in the background. That that bit, as I said, where there's a whole soundscape and it isn't pure music. It's I can put bits from film quotes in and whatever. And I remember that just grabbed me because as a big sci-fi nerd, anytime I heard anything that was sort of about a sci-fi film, any anytime there's a bit of a Blade Runner there, I'm there like a shot. So yeah, it kind of it kind of it, it grabbed me because of all of that. And I did just I enjoyed it as an album. As the years progressed, I realised that I was like I liked it more than a lot of other people, <laughs> and was continuing to like it after a lot of other people had gone. Who I thought they were dead, um, and kept going. You know, um, I mean, I remember when they reformed in the late nineties, early two thousands. I, I think you two were amongst the people that yeah. I would have dragged along, and I said, "Come on, 
Sputnik are playing, and you'd be like, what? I go, no, no, we're going. We are going. Um, because it was, it had to be done. I had to go and sort of see them. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't know. I have no idea when I first heard it. It's Like I said, it's always been there. Ian, you remember? Yeah, I can't. Can't read. I knew the name because I knew the jokes, and I'd heard the jokes about how bad they were before I'd ever heard any of the music. It was like the butt but of a joke. It, they were just like the, you know, like Morecambe and Wise would always talk about Des O'Connor yeah. when they wanted to reference a bad singer, even though he was a, a good singer. Uh, Zignik Sputnik were the, you know, they, they were the the punchline to a lot of mm. a lot of those jokes. So I'd so I'd heard that, but. I think probably um, I saw the album in the uh, local library. We had a record library in there, and uh, I, and I got it out. And it would have been back end of eighty six, I think, not um, maybe early eighty seven. And I heard it there. And I just yeah, I just loved it. Um, and I like you say, I didn't I didn't know all the background stuff. I, and actually, that same copy of that album, I I later worked at that library. <laughs> several years later and um i bought up that very version uh, that that very copy uh, when you know when they sell off old uh, records when they're getting a bit uh, scratched and beaten up so i've i've got the first copy i ever heard um in my record collection nice. but yeah and uh, i think the, the slight difference is in terms of hearing it i had been listening to things like the art of noise i was aware of sampling i didn't realize quite what it was because even when i was listening to the art noise it was just oh this is different and i like it kind of thing mm-hmm. um but i was slightly more attuned to electronic music i mean yeah you know grew up in sheffield you know that's that's where synth music's uh in in popular culture was was kind of centered for a while the cuban league and you know all these all these guys yeah it wasn't quite as much of a oh this is completely new i, I had more touchstones because i like rock and roll and i liked you know this this weird stuff so so yeah it it was an instant uh for me i can take from most of this that they've sort of had an omnipotent presence in line with their their master plan because the three of us sort of can't remember any specifics for <laughs> albums that Ian and myself have said, oh, yes, we listened to this. This was this specific. So that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Just one last thing before we move on to track by track that I remember thinking at the time, something that I thought a little bit later on about Guns N' Roses just before they broke was this idea of how sort of dangerous this band was. Yeah, I remember there being rumours of, if okay, there's apparently a, there was a gig but they didn't turn up and then there's another gig and they didn't turn up and then this sort of undertones of of violence again the old ultra violence the what, what yeah. it's connected to this those sort of synergies and i remember that permeating through to me and i i wouldn't have known what clockwork orange was as a film at the time but i can remember that vibe mm. and thinking oh they sound a bit fucking scary to be honest <laughs> But brilliant. <laughs> they were um, made out to be violent, weren't they? There was a yeah. there was a gig, uh, London somewhere, I suspect, and um, quite what had started, don't know. But apparently, loads of bottles were being thrown at the band, hmm. um, and Ray Mayhew, one of the drummers, just picked one up and threw it back, uh, as you do. Frankly, I have I <laughs> I think that's a perfectly acceptable response. But he'd thrown it back and it had hit somebody in the face. Um, and had sent them off to hospital. And he had then been arrested 
So there were there were um, newspaper headlines of um, you know Zig Zig Sputnik horror attack. That so, would be it. So a lot of it will have come from that, and you'll have heard yeah, that yeah, because yeah. A, a, yeah. apparently this had all happened um, just as they were about to go on this potentially quite um, lucrative tour of Japan, uh, and apparently this idea that they might attack the audience. Um, caused the Japanese tour to be um, postponed. I don't know how true that is about the the Japanese tour. I, I, I remember have seen, you know, looking back on on pages that sort of Tony James has posted. I mean, if you're interested, the official website that Tony James ran and I think still does called SputnikWorld.com has a fascinating set of articles, which mm. is him reminiscing about setting the band up and what he went through. At the time they were doing it, he kind of knew that there was something special. So he had an awful lot of stuff videoed. So they were videoing things left, right, and center. And there's all sorts of weird little snippets you get on YouTube of, you know, members of Zig Zig Sputnik doing stuff. I mean, there is one from just after they first met. And Tony James, Neil X, and Martin Degville are on stage in Paris with Johnny Thunders. And there is, there yeah. is documentary evidence of that. And you're like, that would have been amazing. That, that was their first official yes, gig, it, it I was, think. Uh, yeah. well, I don't think it was – I don't think – I'm not sure if they were they were actually known as Zig Sputnik at the time. It was I can't remember what, hot dogs, I think they were called, something, <laughs> something daft like that. But anyway, you know, the, he was recording stuff all the way through. But I think, Paddy, that's why, you know, there was that thing of danger because there were newspaper sense. articles – because for a long time, for, for that well, for that summer of '86, Zig Zig Sputnik sold newspapers, yeah. so they were talked yeah. about all the time. Um, while while you are browsing YouTube looking for bits of old Sputnik, which I encourage everyone to do, there's also on there there's a really good interview that John Robb did a couple of years ago over lockdown. It's about just over an hour long, and it's just John Robb and and Tony James, where Tony James is essentially telling telling the whole story he misses chunks out for for time yeah. but it's really good and it just puts a bit more flesh on them and obviously at this at this point he's he's telling the story reliving the legend but he's got no skin in the game he doesn't need to hype anything so it's 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 it comes across as being uh you know pretty accurate in terms of the way he tells tells these things so track by track this is the most interesting track by track we've probably ever done before insofar as there isn't a massive amount of eclecticism in these tracks. There is a there is a stunningly well worked formula, and a, certainly as we've as we've touched on before, a lovely a lovely produced sound that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a, an aspect of law of diminishing returns as we move through. So, dear listeners, we um, yeah, this is, this could be interesting. Okay, so opening track. Love missile F F one eleven. If you wanna, if you wanna have a bash, then as you're the uh, uh, you're the um, Zig Zig Sputnik guy, Greg, go on. God, I don't know. I don't know where to to begin. Um, uh, we'll start with the intro because you mentioned that. Yep. Earlier, I mean, it's it. The album starts. Yes, with the with the um, the the bong from Clockwork Orange, which interestingly, I think lots of people didn't realise. I don't think they necessarily knew that's what it was. Mm. I didn't. I mean, I, I knew of the Clockwork Orange, but of course, at the time in the, the mid '80s, um, it was still banned in the UK because Kubrick had um, withdrawn it. Had withdrawn it, indeed. Yeah. But it was just it's this this little bit of noise that you suddenly hear, which isn't oh, it isn't a drum beat. It isn't um, the, a guitar going, which just sort of started it off. 
I, I have to say, I'm going to struggle with, with this because unlike you two, I'm not a musician. So I just kind of like go, well, it sounded good, didn't it? <laughs> um, it's it's kind of a nice, fast-paced song. It, it's got... Um, Trust us, there's, there's not a lot of place for musicians to go There isn't reams of it, I'll tell you now. Yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, it's a catchy... It's a catchy tune. It is, as you say, you know, with Giorgio Moroder involved sort of producing, um, the whole thing was quite sort of glossy. I mean, he'd just done... What had he just done, Giorgio Moroder? he just produced something a bit more mainstream. I can't remember. But, you know, he, his name was known. He, he kind of knew what it took to get stuff in the charts uh, and sounding good. I think it got to about number three in the UK charts. Yeah. Again, it was it, it, it's that fact that when you, you listen to it, when you re-listen to it, you kind of list, you can hear all the little snippets in there which aren't of a traditional band, which sounded good at the time. And then as I grew older and I listened to it more, you go, is that from the Terminator? Is he, <laughs> you know, um, and is that, I can't, oh, this is terrible. I can't remember if I think Love Missile F111 has the soon the whole world will know my name, which is a unused quote from Rocky Four, which they pulled from the trailer. And uh, quite famously, once they, done an awful lot of the album they realized all the samples they put in they hadn't got clearance for so they have to go back and it, it's a little adventure that i and a number of other uh, dedicated zig zig sputnik fans have done over the years which is to hear each sample and then try and work out whether it's been speeded up or slowed down from the original and thus where the original came from it is a nerdy little <laughs> nerdy little ta- task but it's quite good fun to do yeah, I, it's got a drum beat to it. Um, <laughs> there's Tony James with his famous space bass, which, if you're interested, is a um, it's a bass guitar which has. I again, I'm not a musician, so I can't remember all of it. It's some kind of um, um, sampler units attached to it, or it can. Yeah, it was it, it was uh, Roland. I think it was one of the first. That's right. Kind of MIDI gu- guitar control. Interestingly, it was actually bought for him by Mick Jones of yeah. the Clash. He bought it for bought it back over from America, and Tony James had long said that was that that was what gave them their kind of quite distinctive sound. Is what he calls the space bass, um, which apparently because there's a sampler involved, meant he had to play about a tenth of a second ahead of everything. So that it would all match up, which sounds horrendous. Um, (laughs) But he managed to do it quite well. Yeah, I can't imagine having to do that. (laughs) Um, I guess the main main motif that lives through the album in, I think, three songs is is the same bass line, which is that semitone, which normally you would, again, this is the whole point of the album, normally you would, so go at something like that and think, well, this is this is preposterous that they would reuse. But it, in the context of this album, it just so doesn't matter. I mean, it's the same with the guitar playing. Neil X is a really... Th- th- what he does, he does with a certain panache and taste. And I know a lot of it's like you play the riff around once or twice, sample it, spit it up and go da 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 and do weird things with samples. But nevertheless, the source sound, I think, is quite pleasant. Mm. But essentially, it's like two or three rock and roll riffs, licks, and you never leave pentatonics and off you go. But it just doesn't, it just doesn't matter. And again, I think that bass riff is, 
is the main synonymous sound yeah, of Sputnik. It yeah. is. It is become known as the Sputnik bass riff, yeah. <laughs> which, to be fair, is is actually. I mean, it's a punk staple that um, usually a kind of guitar riff, power chord sliding down a, a semitone and sliding back on, on onto note. I mean, the pistols used it all over the place, so it's 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 not unusual to, to come out from that background. I think the difference is obviously because of where it's played. It's kind of an octave above where you'd normally think the bass part's going to be. It doesn't sound. Bassy uh, mm. for a for a for a bass part, but I I think it's great one to kick kick off the album. Obviously, it was the lead single, and and did good business there. So you know you'd have people buying the album expecting to hear that, and that's that's all all well and good. But the intro, as you as you said, it's very cine, cinematic. It, I mean, it sounds like it's it's a movie starting. Where you know when the the drums and the bass kick in, it actually gets a bit lighter, <laughs> if anything. But it does sound cinematic. Uh, I think, but this is we can probably use this as a, as a contemplate for a lot of the tropes that happen in the album. We've got you know bits where the song suddenly stops for a bit and there's a sample in there or some some weird ca- uh, counter. We've got a, a Japanese talking over a classical string piece <laughs> in the middle. Um, we've got um, the overuse of delays at the end of vocal lines, so the last word suddenly re- repeats and then dis- does pitch shifts and disappears. Off into the sky. That's definitely a, a Sputnik trope. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, for some reason, they've they've got the um, U.S. cavalry charge uh, bugle in the middle of <laughs> the song for no reason. Um, they've got the weird because it sounds good. That's well, exa- why exactly. I it mean, exactly. Brilliant. And everyone's and, like, and "What is this?" They seamlessly fit. It's yeah. like yes, they yeah. have put something in on purpose, but. It's not a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't sound like that. And they haven't had to use a shoe on to get it there. No, it's all tempo matched and, and what have you. So, so it does that and comes straight back in where, where it should do. Yeah, yeah. You've got weird throbbing noises happening. You've got bits of sound a bit like radio tuning effects, but they're not. They're more kind of, you know, flanging and, and, and effects. You've got sci-fi alien siren sounds on there. And above all this, you've got, as you said, Neil X's kind of rockabilly a guitar with so much reverb and, and what have you, you know, it's, it's, you know, Gene Vincent, Vincent, Eddie Cochran kind of stuff. Um, and then it suddenly stops <laughs> at the end. Excellent. I mean, what, what more can you say, except if you haven't heard it, go and listen to it. Absolutely. The, the, the one thing, other thing, I suppose I will comment on, and I probably shouldn't, but the lyrics, if you can call them, <laughs> it's, it's just stream of consciousness, but it's, it's mad, but it's it brilliant. Again, it, it's this weird sort of sci-fi. I can't, I can't remember if they even. They, I think they mentioned sort of this is nineteen ninety, and this is this is an eighty six. So they're already yeah. making out that they're in the future. You know, they're a twenty first century boy. It's just, um, it's almost sort of stream of consciousness. But there's um, a kind of a cyberpunk sci-fi sort of twist There's to a it. There's se- sex and violence underlying. Yeah, yeah the, the whole thing. thing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's no, there's no, for want of a better term, there's no story to this song. There's not, it is just, we're going to make a load of noise and Martin Degville's going to sing some words over the top of it. Well, I mean, it, it's there in the title. Is it Love Missile F-111? It's obviously you've got, you've got both a penis illusion and an, a, a heavy armaments illusion. You've yeah. got sex and violence in the same thing. And all of the, the words are just 
let's call them lyrics, let's be kind. <laughs> all of, all of the, the lyrics are just basically contextually related to the title of the song. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. They're not the wrong words for the song because mm-hmm. you could say, well, of course that line's going to be in Love Mi- a song called Love Missile F111. They don't have to make sense. It, it is a, a kind of collage, really. That's a perfect way of looking at it. These songs are sort of collages. Although I will say, moving on, segueing expertly. Oh, no, hang on. Pop Elite itself covered Love Missile F111 on They Pop did, yeah. Friends. Yes, they did. Worth checking out. And I think for the type of band that Pop Elite itself were and became, that was very flattering. I, I, I can remember hearing that and, and being told that PWEI had covered it, and I was a bit like, excuse me? Why? <laughs> what? Um, but yes, I because I, I think I actually used that at some point in time, uh, no doubt at school or somewhere, to go, see? It must be good. Pop will itself have covered them. Absolutely. You know, that was, I think I used that as an argument, and I stand by it. Being at school in the Midlands, uh, Pop Will Eat Itself uh, invocation was going to have carry a lot of weight. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it meant something very much. Yeah. So on any version that you guys have got, because I think we said that there is an advert between each song. Yeah. On, I'm listening. I've got the CD next to me, but I've been listening to it predominantly on Spotify. Is there an advert between this and Atari Baby? Because for me, yeah. it goes straight. Tempo, po, po, po. Das neue Deutsche Monatsmagazine. Right, that's the one that's gone then on the streaming. I wonder why that's gone and everything else. Seems Spotify's to be lost a couple of them. Um, all right. Well, I've I've written them down and I've got some. I know them all. <laughs> between every other song except for Twenty First Century Boy and Massive Retaliation. That's interesting. All right. Well, we'll work through anyway because. Well um, done, Ian. I'm glad. I'm glad you've got a note of all of these because sadly, um, <laughs> I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough homework. I'm afraid. <laughs> If um, I hear the last bar of the song, I will yeah. know what the advert is. <laughs> you start it straight away. Yeah. But now, Atari Baby, I think this, as a tune, sticks its head slightly further above the parapet Absolutely. with a bit of musical yes. legitimacy. I, I would call it my favourite Zig Zig Sputnik song, probably. And if I remember correctly, this wasn't a single? No, no. it wasn't. No. I think that was ridiculous. This, um, there's some real <laughs> panache and dare I say it feel going on here, yeah. which isn't a natural a natural direction necessarily to go in. Now I believe yeah, really the record nice. company wanted them to put this out as a single. Doesn't and surprise Tony me. James overruled them because crazy wanted, cool. <laughs> I think probably one of the things that makes a difference, if you look at the writing credits, all the writing credits are Tony James, Martin Degville, and Neil Whitmore, Neil X, except for two where George Moroder gets a a writing credit. This is the first one that Giorgio Moroder gets a a writing credit. And I think it has um, something about it which is uh, a little more of a a notion of um, uh, arrangement and composition. Mm, mm, All the elements are still there. You can't say someone else has written that and they've just played along. It's definitely... uh, Sputnik is definitely out of the same mindset, but it's just had a little bit more input from someone with more of a composer's ear, I should yeah. say. No, definitely. And I think it's now this this is the one song that breaks the overall pace. There are sort of two other paces in the album. Yeah. This is the one that is again standout. A really it, it, not something you always expect to say about this album with with the best will in the world, but it's a really nice little song, is this that if you played it, 
if you played it to somebody who'd never heard the album as the only thing on the album, they'd be more shocked by listening to the rest of it. Than if, <laughs> if you played all of the album and then played them this, it would make more sense. Yeah. But yeah. So for all those people who are like, oh, you know, there's nothing really musical. I mean, there is musical stuff on it. Uh, albeit a little bit repetitive, but this is the one that sticks its head above the parapet for me. It's a lovely little tune. It really is. And uh, I I think you're absolutely right about the reasons you surmise, probably fiscally, ultimately, that (laughs) they wouldn't have particularly wanted this as second single or third single or what have you, but oh, they should have done. I think think it would have made quite a difference, actually, in a way. It's a a great song, but it's possible that with the imagery and hype around the band at the time, this album, this song wouldn't have worked because it, you wouldn't be hearing this song on its own merits. You'd be hearing it as, well, hang on, this isn't a violent street gang aesthetic yeah. that it's supposed to fit into. And so, yeah, I think I think there was probably actually a bit more knowing about how it was likely to be received uh, um, rather than just its its musical merits because it's it's much slower. It's it's more at- atmospheric, I'd say. There's a lot going uh, going on in that. It builds brilliantly, so it's not the same all all the way through. You, you get a second arpeggio synth comes in after the first verse and builds it, so it, it just keeps gaining weight as it as it rolls on. And then it's got one of the things I really like with any production that classic kind of uh, almost Motown um, harmonized girl group backing vocals. Mm, yeah. You know, God knows what they're singing. <laughs> Um, well it's uh, just product placement isn't it but um yeah it's uh, it's brilliant um they also the girl group comes back in later has been sampled and then that's cut up and and stuttered and things so they do things with the different elements that they've already introduced in in one form there's some nice kind of pads and sound effects going in there and degville's vocal performance is significantly more nuanced on this. There's more going on than mm-hmm. the rest of the songs. It's not, you know, straight ahead, full power. There's actually a some kind of sensitivity in this that, that kind of, again, belies what uh, he's, he's kind of um, thought of as a, as a performer. Which is kind of interesting, again, on the, the track placement. You would think they would might have buried it on side two, if, if it was yeah. overtly important mm. that we stay with the thematics that we've espoused. Then you think, ah, oh, they might put it later on, but to go straight from Love May Missile for Eleven into this is kind of just fascinating in its own in its own way. Seems a little bit contradictory. Maybe they thought if they put Sex Bomb Boogie next, people might not have realised the first. <laughs> 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 yeah, needed some way of differentiating between the tracks. Quick, put the slow one. Well, that, that's an excellent, uh, excellent segue. <laughs> Effortless, logical. So we have your Network Twenty One advert in between. Yeah, Network, Network Twenty One, <laughs> which then just all the same key. It could yep. be a it could be a guitar run. Other than the things are totally unrelated, but sonically completely related when it turns out that they're next to each other. And for me, that's as as a mechanism and a little you know as a little mechanic. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. It, it sort of sounds as if, oh, well, yeah, that's obvious. No, it's not. It's really subtle and it's really clever. Yeah. And nobody else was doing it, so it's not that bloody obvious, you know. But, yeah, Sex Bomb Boogie, uh, Ian? <laughs> so um, 
they've plugged the space base back in and played <laughs> the, the same, same bass line. <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced it's a different key. They do play um, key, yes. <laughs> but that's um, not really hiding it. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I think this is why people will say, oh, Spotnik, it's, just, it's all just sounds the same or what have you, because this one is so close to... Uh, Love Missile F111 as to almost be a parody of it, uh, uh, quite frankly. But, you know, it pretty much does everything that F111 does, samples-wise and, 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 and synth-wise. Uh, Neil X has some more interesting guitar lines on this say, one. Yeah, yeah nice. Yeah, so he, he's, he's let loose a little bit more. But, yeah, tonally, there's, yeah, there's nothing new on this one, I I think. No, I was going to say the same. Um, he stretches a little bit further as Neil X and sounds as great as he does on the other songs. Some of, I think, some of the more, the first bunch of really overt messing with the vocal samples, the repeats and the pitch shift yeah. stuff on this song. Uh, but again, that becomes something that that repeats as we go along. Um, I, I think the thing to, to say probably, you know, they took their aesthetic for this mixture of kind of Blade Runner and 50s rockabilly and early rock and roll. And there's nothing more rock and roll than a song about the dance to the song. It's a bit like when, you know, when you got the early mainstream rap came out and hit the pop charts, a lot of early mainstream rap was about rap <laughs> and yeah, a, lot, yeah. a lot of early rock and roll was about rock and roll or you know and i've always had these these kind of songs which are about the dance that goes with with the song you know they crammed them all together in one song in in the in the blues brothers famously but all of those songs they kind of go through and shake your tail feather would all they were all songs about <laughs> those uh, those dances and what have you um and so this is you know this is the cyberpunk you know sex bomb boogie that that's 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 the dance song, yeah, or the yeah. song about the dance. But I'll, I'll still pause it as a sort of oof moment. The first time it happened was that that add into song, that, that yeah. seamlessness. And that sort of, you're almost, uh, it's like waiting for the pop for the wrestler to come out, right? And every, whoa, you have that moment. For me, listening to that seamless join between two worlds, something that sort of isn't a song and is a song, but are all part of a group of songs and part of an art piece. I think it's a real little little pop to use uh, wrestling parlance. Well, like that that particular one, the timing between the end of the advert and the start of the uh, the song is so perfect. It's it's about a beat. If you mm. stick a if you stuck a snare in that between the two, um, oh, yeah. snare, it would be oh, completely part of the purpose. song. It, yeah, 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 brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It really is. And then we have, <laughs> this is, I could embarrass myself massively here. So then we have the ultimate in rubber. So was, was this a, a contraceptive? No. I, 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 I was like, as I listened to this, I thought, well, I've always just take, taken this for granted as a load of words. Is this what I think it is, or is this something else? I no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a um, another clothing shop in Kensington Market. Ah, right. So, right. so Martin Degville, we've not we've not mentioned. Uh, Martin Degville is an interesting character. He was kind oh, of a, yes. a clothes designer in that that punk style. Um, 
he's actually he's from the Midlands, as well as Walsall, isn't it, or, yeah. or somewhere yeah. up there? Um, he was good friends with Boy George. I think Boy George actually worked for Degville at, at, at one point in his shop. They they, in they the shared Midlands, a flat. Or, they shared a flat. They did share a flat months. in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, and, uh, and 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 so he he had a shop called Yana in Kensington Market, and this is another shop in Kensington Market. It's called Pure Sex. Um, ah, so the advert is pure sex fashion is a disease and we're the cure etc uh, etc et I, I like that your mind went somewhere else paddy well done well done yeah, on your... I, I hadn't i hadn't read up on every single one so i just didn't know i was going with what it sort of sounded like and it wouldn't had it been that it wouldn't have surprised me nor would it have not fit <laughs> what's possibly interesting just to point out at this point is if you had the uh the if you had the 12 inch in your hand um just because that's where your mind went if you had that actually the album so the album cover and the sleeve mm-hmm. was used ads as well right so that had ads in it had pictorial ads for everything that appears as an audio ad and some other ones as well so the artwork was part of the the, the joke I, and the aesthetic uh, as well it's uh, all kind of one you see one i never thing. owned it on vinyl i only had it on cassette then cd then stream the yeah, CD yeah. actually, I, I've got the the first release of the the CD here. Mainly, I I, I got it because the vinyl was <laughs> so knackered. Um, but they did quite a good job of of most of the stuff that was um, that was on the the vinyls yeah. in in here in 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 some other form. As I said, I know we briefly touched upon it and and talked about all things cyberpunk and Blade Runner esque, but just it, it's it's a fantastic cover and inlays it it yeah. really really does perfectly match the music and actually the the cd cover is actually slightly different to the lp because the lb's got it looks more like a pop magazine it's got like a cut out oh. in the top left of a, a photo of the band and there's a little bit more uh, uh, going on it's so they kind of reimagined the artwork for the the, the cd release mm. and again it looks it looks a bit more punk it looks a bit more fanziny as being mixed in with these kind of very expensive film and anime type imagery and just the pictures of them if there was any undertone of violence you see degville through his sort of three hole head tights and he's quite i mean it's <laughs> not scary i mean i'm not being disparaging they all look cool as hell yeah but he He's a little bit scary, right? Which is perfect. Well, I mean, they used to refer to those that they were their Mad Max photos. Yeah, yeah that was, brilliant. I mean, that yeah. was exactly it. I mean, they, yeah. they had, I mean, we've talked about the cyberpunk, but yeah, they kind of taken some stuff from Mad Max, especially Mad Max 2, and kind of like gone, right, let's, let's run with it. It was, um, yes, I mean, visually, um, I think it is important. I, I know we kind of have already talked about this, but just... It was never just an album, and here's some some packaging that goes with it. The packaging is at least, you know, as important as yeah. everything else. In the same way that every bit of noise you hear is important as the other bit. It was, it was almost. I mean, it isn't, but it, it's almost like an art project in that it all kind of ties in with itself. Do you know what I mean? It it, it was. Yeah. There are quite a lot of albums there where a song came out, you listen to it, listen to the next one, listen to the next one. You know, as we're saying at the moment, this whole thing is almost, almost an uninterrupted stream of music. As Ian says, put a couple of snares in between each advert. You're just going all the way through as a single yeah. long sort of track. Now, I haven't looked at the um, at the cover in a long time, actually. 
and I'm now going to have to hunt my my CD out. <laughs> my my vinyl is um, with our friend Mark somewhere. Um, he's got most of my vinyl <laughs> in safe storage, so I haven't got that. But I have still; it does still exist. But yes, I'll have to look it out because oh, it was there was some inspired bits of artwork and just um, photography and oh yeah, and imagery on uh, it. And it's all uh, you know that kind of. I don't know whether it's it's uh, actual. Uh, Japanese lettering, but there's certainly the kind of pseudo kind of uh, Japanese uh, lettering just scrawled anywhere there's yeah. space to, <laughs> space to fit it. Yeah. Again, very much like the abundance of uh, neon adverts in, in Blade Runner and, you know, every mm-hmm. available thing. On the packaging, I, I just remember reading that the first 20,000 copies of the album went out in a, a box set, or the box was kind of modelled on a the kind of Japanese toy robot packaging. So they even made the the album itself not look like a traditional album in packaging. It was like a it was like you were buying a robot. I'd love to see see that. I I hadn't I've never heard that before, no. but that would be that's entirely plausible, and I would love to see it. You'd yeah. mortgage your house to get one of those, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, a, a, a half decent copy of the album on vinyl now, sixty odd quid. It's, yeah, you know. But yeah, nothing superfluous to the concept of, uh, in terms of the product, either the, the mental product or the physical product. Nothing mm-hmm. superfluous to the concept. It's brilliant. Okay, Rocket Miss USA opens with um, Clint Eastwood. Go ahead, punk. Make my day. Yeah, <laughs> works perfectly. I'd say this is. This is ever so slightly more the straight four on the floor rock song. If we are delving slightly into slightly different eclectic song types, not a great deal, but I think it's a little bit more straight ahead and perhaps slightly heavier. If you can really use that word for this, I don't know. Well, interestingly, I, I mean, they, they've talked about the aesthetic influences. I know musically, one of the their touch points was the band Suicide, who were obviously early pioneers of kind of electric, uh, electric music and, and mixing, and, and they were heavier. And they've got a song in their first, I think, their first album uh, called Rocket USA. Yeah. If you listen to Rocket USA, you can you can see where Rocket Miss USA has come from. There's a lot of similarity. I mean, Tony James has actually said that, that this was their attempt to essentially do their take on that song yeah. now uh, rocket usa by suicide I always think has a little bit more in common with 1969 by the stooges it's um that the, the vocal delivery is like that but it is it is very heavy it's got this very driving distorted bass kind of thing going on this has choruses which the suicide one doesn't per se it's a bit more uh progressive um but it doesn't surprise me that it sounds heavier to your ears, given that that song was a a, a, a touchstone, possibly my favourite song on the album. Actually, possibly, I don't know. Oh, it's possibly the next one. Anyway, we'll go there. <laughs> so and now, and now we have an advert, an advert which is is preposterous nonsense, and all the <laughs> better for it. Um, and this this is the one that has the ideas of empire in terms of sort of taking over the world. Possibly, this is the. Sex, technology, excitement, computer games, <laughs> music. Zig Sputnik provide all this. 
and more. <laughs> but the advert is both for Sputnik World Enterprises and the Sputnik Corporation. <laughs> Correct. So yes, this 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 advert is well. We don't say it's a it's a fake advert because it's not a made up product because <laughs> very much this is part of the aesthetic. But this is absolutely um, uh, an art piece <laughs> yeah. for that, keeping in with the the hype. Just making sure that you you don't forget what the theme is <laughs> for this album, as if you could. And again, yeah, and it uh, it, it rolls in uh, rolls in nicely again. Does indeed to 21st century boy. So you have these few little uses of classical riffs, and this works so well as well. It's simple. It's it's throwing your nets out and pulling something else in, but oh, absolutely love it. It just works perfectly. And there is again because there is sort of this sort of high concept somewhere. I mean, it's very out of. It's very far away from the music, you might say, in a way. But using that little bit of classical, those that classical riffage really does add something for me. Love it, love it. And then what do we do? We go back to the baseline again. Because why the hell wouldn't you? Yeah, it's not quite as um, in your face this time. It's a, it's a, I think production-wise, it's it's been reduced in its impact a tad i'd say but yeah it's a more traditional rock and roll song and it, it, it probably gets away with a bit more because there's more movement on it we've got more chord progression we've actually got a you know a chorus that's a chorus in this one which is nice have we what there's a chorus <laughs> well no, i was actually i was actually just thinking he, he, sing, are... he sings the song title okay. <laughs> i was just thinking i'm I mean, gonna call I that accused, a chorus i accused uh love me so f111 of being sort of stream of consciousness but actually this one was even Worse or better depends on your point of view. I, uh, yeah, it's just it's oh, it's mad. I love it. I think if you're rep- rep- repeating the phrase "I'm a space cowboy, I'm a 20th century, 21st century wonder boy," um, several times, that's the chorus. Okay, all right, okay. Um, and and the chords change under it. So that's you see, there he is. He's bringing the music up again. <laughs> <laughs> and again, one of the most interesting albums to apply musical ideas. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, well, I very nearly said at the top of this, I've made lots of notes, which is more than Sputnik did when they were making the album. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it would have been a fair uh, point. All, all power to them. So a few interesting little bits, though. The, I love the little another product placement, the Coca-Cola, and it sounds like they're sort of glugging, but it's whatever they're doing to the vocal. There's a lovely little drop down to a sort of honk-tonk piano. Yeah, just throw a piano in there. Where did that come from? And then they put a disco synth on top of it. And then they yeah move it out into a synth and sort of evolve it. And then such excellent lyrics as penis, ram, sex, a cram. I mean, it's just, you know, are we all wrong? Are, our artists, are, all, are all the other artists out of step and this is the way to do this shit? It's good enough to sort of make you edge yeah. thinking that, put it that yeah. way. There is an argument to be made uh, there. <laughs> they throw Takata in there as a classical segue between, well, they're segueing between two identical parts, but they throw that in. I don't know why, but I, I love the guitar lick on this. There's pinch, a few pinch harmonics, yeah. which again, pinch harmonics with lots of effects on them always sound really, really lush. But uh, I think that little, um, because this is, this is in, C sharp or something daft, which I, I don't know why it would be, other than maybe that I, I imagine maybe 
Tony thought his arms looked best in that position. <laughs> <laughs> I love the thought that they've chosen G not to look after the singer, but no, 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 when I, when I lean over the monitor this way, I'm in C sharp, it looks quite good. Um, but uh, I mean, it's only because I absolutely love them and I would uh, dare to take the piss like that. Uh, because oh, anyone else said it, I'd punch him. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that uh, the the lick, the da 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 da. da, da. I just, I mean, I I think I'm a very limited lead player. I think I probably throw that lick into eighty percent of the lead solos I ever <laughs> attempt, just because it's Fair. yeah. Cool. So, what was the advert between? This oh, hang on. Well, it oh, we still it no. ends with a mmm. I love technology. Which yes, yes, good. And then the the next advert is. ID Magazine, a cliche crusher for the 21st century. So ID Magazine was, uh, yeah, definitely one of those. I don't know if it, it might still be. It, was, it lasted quite a, quite a long time. It was it, like those things like wallpaper and what have you. Going, or that I, yeah. I, like, I, I don't know, mate. It's the kind of things where the readership probably think that it's, you know, some kind of incredible oracle and everyone else thinks anyone that reads ID Magazine is a dick. It's a, it's a, it's a style magazine for people want, that want to decide what should and shouldn't be in fashion. Well, as they said in the advert, it was once considered the most pretentious magazine in the world. Now, it's simply the simply best. The best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> but again, it absolutely fits in with the whole the whole vibe. And then what I, I always think of the um, we will rock you moment on the album, be it brief, <laughs> with the which is another excellent use of a little bit of... Uh, classical riffage straight into a drum beat yeah so we're on massive retaliation yeah here. we are on massive retaliation here yeah we? so it is it's actually the sped up we will rock you drums isn't it from queen pass i don't know if it actually is i don't know from some i mean i mean but it is that dum 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 yeah yeah it sounds like it i don't know whether i i don't think it was sampled i know no no i i just mean it's it's that same uh that same style of, of drums i mean you've got you've got the big ones you've got we will rock you you've got when the levy breaks and and uh one or two others that uh you yeah, know yeah. the uh, the classic glitter band stomp the kind of classic rock and roll uh uh rhythms and 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 this is one of them this is another one with a uh, uh marauder writing credit ah. on as well and i think again i would say there's slightly more going on in the um composition yeah. or the the arrangement again um, something completely different in this song as well you have those sort of carnival sounds and that carnival arrangement come on down and buy a sputnik we have miles and yeah. miles of sputnik miles and miles of sputnik it's like sputnik a day keeps the doctor away <laughs> It, seriously, it's it's really really clever. Carnival, honky tonk piano. But this is what you do when classical. I, I think to Greg's point and uh, and what you were talking to about, about maybe this says how lyrics should be written. Where when your lyrics aren't a kind of you know a narrative or a, or a poem or what have you, you can get away with saying, "Oh, remember this is a Sputnik uh, album." That's just that's just throw allusions to to the whole hype in in there and, and talk about stuff and. You know, you couldn't have do, done that if this was a, a standard verse chorus, a, a kind of boy meets girl love story, or you know, it, you know, that my horse ran off with my whiskey kind of country song. It can only be done because you've taken this approach <laughs> to the uh, the lyrical components, and it's just yeah, it's excellent. We got uh, got some more rockabilly lead guitar in there. The uh, the girl group vocals are back with the shut up, shut up. 
which is absolutely sublime. Again, Maroda, Maroda. Yeah. Maroda. We've got uh, the uh, the breathy sample in there. Actually, I, 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 that reminded me a little bit of uh, Art of Noise. And I think, actually, you could have, without the Sputnik carnival bit, um, giving the game away, you probably could have taken this and stuck it on Art of Noise's second album and it would have sounded like it was part part of that because it's it's accomplished in in that that same kind of uh that same kind of way worth having to listen to 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 that album just because i keep mentioning i was talking to, i think i mentioned on the art of noise when we were talking about nine inch nails last episode as well that's probably because i secretly believe they invented all modern music <laughs> you may have a point <laughs> so anyway we then then on to another fictitious uh, more fictitious ad. ah now, how fictitious was this? And um... I think it's fictitious. Um, the only other thing I want to add is it Gaz <laughs> Top who's doing this because he sounds exactly like. It does Gaz sound Top. like Gaz? I, I've I've heard that it is before, but I, uh, I not from a, I, I'm not, a source yeah. I can necessarily show. Yeah. But um, uh, do you know anything more about the story of the computer game? No, um, I'd, I remember I have heard stories a few times that something had begun development, but. I mean, how true that was. I have well, absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, I found some interesting blogs and videos on YouTube of people investigating the mystery of the Zig Zig Sputnik computer game and including, like, digging up reviews. So apparently someone at Computer and Vegetable Games actually reviewed it at some point. So they they had a review copy. Interesting. And there are screenshots you can find of of the game. Do they involve the band on stage trying to hit audience members with bottles? <laughs> um, they, I would pay to play that. Yeah, um... <laughs> they have glorious eight bit. Yeah, apparently you, you you apparently play as a band member and wander around, and you can throw things at digitized <laughs> images of pop stars of the day. Phil Collins being one of them, apparently, Ooh. according to uh, according to legend. But all sorts of you know major artists. Uh, of the day so it's worth if you've got you know some time to kill go go digging for that that kind of thing because i'm gonna go digging now i'm i i really <laughs> i was always um i like i said i'd heard the rumors of, of something happening but nothing had ever come out the only thing that ever made me think there was a a ring of truth to it was that the advert so something like a zigzag computer game Wow, God, how did they word it? There was, there was a, um, a phrasing right at the end. Um, what was it they said? I cannot remember. Uh, oh, um, your favourite software house, now. Yeah. Now, again, this might be a faulty memory because I'm getting on in, in years. But f- your favourite software house, I am convinced, was the term that they used to describe ocean software. Yeah. Back Very in much. the day, Ocean yeah. Software that, that did shed loads of games for the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 and the, all the other 8-bit machines, but those were obviously the two biggies. Your favourite software house was Ocean. Yeah. Now, the fact, all right, they haven't mentioned Ocean, but the sheer fact that they'd said your favourite software house, can't, you know, it's a very kind of implicit, it's implicit that, well, Ocean are publishing this. We're yeah. not saying Ocean because we don't need to, but that was the kind of thing you could imagine them getting away mm. with. An ocean would go, yeah, everyone knows that we're their favourite software house. Um, so that that little snippet always made me wonder whether it was real. But other than that, yeah, I mean, I, I never... 
certainly wasn't ever for sale when I went looking for it. No, I don't believe it actually made it made yeah, it to sale to, to full release. No. Yeah, I've just uh, I've just sent a, a link around in the chat there that you can read at your leisure. Oh, at, uh, at, well, now you've done that, you realise that's it. I'll be, I'll be, oh yeah, look at this. So the point is whether we uh, we think of this advert as a fake advert or a real advert. I'm going to say it's real in the same way that the Sputnik Corporation one is. Uh, it's not. It's not something they've dreamt up to fill the space. There might have been a half-assed intention to do a thing if it all kicked off type of vibe. And, and as mentioned before, um, uh, Tony James was a uh, computer scientist, he was, and he worked. Yeah. He worked as a software engineer before becoming a, a musician. He was obviously a big fan of technology. He went down the MSX route famously. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers that format. I think it was a Sony format in the uh the the mid 80s and it kind of obviously lost out to the the kind of pc in the end but it was it was it was thought of as as being a um uh kind of extensible format that multiple manufacturers could could build uh software for well perhaps perhaps he knocked it up when he was playing the songs on stage because he wasn't doing a great deal else at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Again said with love, said with love. <laughs> but whether it's you know, true or not, it certainly uh, occupies as much mystery space in my brain as the Atari ET game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Just less <laughs> landfill. It's, it's right. yes, a lot less landfill. And probably more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Distinctly possible. Distinctly yeah. possible. So, moving on to Teenage Thunder. Was there a name? Was there a film called Chinatown that this first riff was actually? The yeah, first I think, was I think from? that is from um, Chinatown's a Dak Nicholson movie. Right, yeah. I thought so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think again, um, I'm pretty sure that comes from the trailer. I go, this is Chinatown. It's yes. a classic noir fr- thriller. After yeah. my contraceptive uh, debacle, I did one. <laughs> 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 the only thing I've noted about this specifically is there is a a bunch of passages which so, uh, sound more overtly uh, to be using 808 trump sounds, which are extremely synonymous with early hip-hop. Uh, and, and a lot of other things, actually. They, they The retro aspect built out into their legacy and legend. But I suppose in 1986, you would be pointing at sort of electro and early hip-hop stuff, and you can really hear those sounds in some of the passages, which is quite nice. And I think there is something on She's My Man that sounds a little bit 808, but prior to Teenage Thunder, I can't remember hearing those particular kind of drum sounds again. The addition of something quite specific again. And I think we were talking about whether the album's dated or or, or not. Hmm. I think the only things that perhaps walk towards sounding a little bit dated are some of the synth sounds, like you say, they were were of their time. You know, this is an 8-bit world we're talking about here. It still sounds like sixty-four bit production uh, to me. It it does sound ahead of ahead of its time, but yeah, you get those odd occasional sounds that put you back into the technology of the time. I, th- I think adding Giorgio Romoda as a producer has the equivalent positive effect in the same way as adding the Beastie Boys' song "Sabotage" to any film trailer. <laughs> if you the quality of that trailer by at least 75%, then I think using Giorgio Moroder as producer had a similar effect on the quality and the uh, standing test of time sound of Zig Zig's album. I will leave that there. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we as, as, <laughs> as we said before on previous, uh, you know, it's very easy to get a bit of tech and to use the first preset that you come across <laughs> yes, um, from your Tandy synthesizer. And what having a, uh, a dyed-in-the-wool producer who knows his onions is, you, you sidestep that common mistake. Um, because he's, he probably knows how to get to sound two, which buttons to press, so <laughs> it all, all makes a, a difference. Well, there's something incredibly romantic about using preset number one and making it into a song which sells on an album. I kind of like that. Press bossa nova, sync start, uh, <laughs> preset number one. There's something interesting about the bass synth on this one and the bass pan. It sounds like there's a bit of threat buzz at the end of the, you know, you've got that, a bass riff that, that kind of mutes at the end it mm-hmm. uh, stops and starts mm. it sounds like it's got the kind of fret buzz you would get if you were trying to mute the strings ready for that and i keep listening intently trying to work out whether it sounds exactly the same every time where it's been sampled in or there's a few different variants and i and i cannot tell i'm willing to think it's been sampled but i'm not sure that it's a synth voice rather than a sampled bass that's been processed it's not important at all it's just a little thing that's mm. like bugging me because i'd like <laughs> I'd like to like to know, but it does. It is different to any of the other kind of uh, bass synth sounds going on in the rest of the album. Yeah. For for that uh, for that respect, again, this the the track by track is picking the bits out of the collage, though, as you alluded to before. Yeah, that's the fascination of it, and one of the reasons why I'd, I'd strongly, strongly encourage anybody who's not heard this album and for some bizarre reason is listening to podcasts to get cracking, <laughs> get cracking straight away. Yeah. Um, so we, then we have the uh, famous L'Oreal uh, advert. Yeah. I do Fixing wonder, gel. <laughs> I do wonder if L'Oreal really understood what this, where it was going and what it was going on to. Did the um... I, th- I think they did. If you, if yeah. you, if you remember, I don't know if, if you particularly can remember back, but that advert was well it's that that if you can look if you if for anybody that is listening and, and doesn't know what we're talking about look up the um l'oreal studio line advert and if there's anything more quintessentially 80s than that then i have never seen it because it is just a bunch of people jumping around in bright um sort of neon <laughs> colors um with um so much hair gel in the, with their hair going in all sorts of different directions i think Surely not if it's gel. That's not the point. Um, I think I think L'Oreal knew exactly what they were getting into, exactly. and I think it was perfect. It was perfect for them, and it was perfect for Sputnik. The two just kind of went together. Yeah, I, I, put it this way: if you're a marketing executive for a company that specialises in stronghold sculpting mousse what, and gel bold? for hair, and and you look at Degville's hair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. You're practically saying, look how good our stuff is. This guy's <laughs> hair is eight foot tall. <laughs> and, you, and you might think it's Tony James's top hat with a hole in it that's holding that hair. But no, <laughs> fantastic. So on to the last track. She's my man. She's yep. my man. Uh, rimshot intro, sampled rimshot. Sort of trundles along at a pace, quite nice. Uh, the main thing that's sort of defines this song for me is how it ends and consequently ends barring the last advert the engine where it somehow managed to sound sort of manages to sound a lot grander and bigger than it is the way that the little synth arrangement right at the very very end where is sort of echoed 
song name is is being shouted out. She's my man. She she she's and it yeah. it just sounds quite big and cavernous and dare yeah. I say stadia at the time, and sort of just finishes the whole thing rather nicely. It's a classic eighties pop song. Mm. I mean, I, I know Love Missile Left One Eleven was used on numerous film soundtracks. I mean, uh, Ferris Bueller is probably the the, the mm. most well known, but it pops up all over the place. How, was this one ever used? Because you could hear, you yeah. could hear. If this wasn't used by John Hughes in something, I, no, I I'd it was be very it surprised. Was, um, I can't. Remember, it was a it was a John Candy comedy. Oh, and this is going to really annoy me now, and I know I should have probably done some research beforehand. But it was it was used in a John Candy film, just as a as a background, because it was a. I can remember watching this film one time and suddenly went, "It's Sputnik." It was the only thing that woke me up. It wasn't a very good film. Um, <laughs> no, I can't remember which one it is at the moment, unfortunately, which is annoying. But yes, it ha- it, it was used in, in a a film called Dead Guy. I don't know. I honestly. Oh no! Armed and dangerous. That sounds That's it. Yeah, was it? But it has that sound, that generic eighties light comedy, mm. teenage high school type uh, sound to it. It's it's very much of its time. It's a it's a great little pop song. It's doesn't sound quite as Sputnik as the rest of them from a from if you think about the threatening side of it, mm. except for obviously the kind of gender fluidity of the of the lyric and uh, and what have you, which is very Degville. But yeah, it's it's it, it, it uh, would be interesting to see what it would have done as a as a single. I've got I've got to throw this last bit to you, Ian. The last ad, the EMI <laughs> ad, the EMI records, um, a company it's, so great one day will buy, buy the, the company, company. It, it, again. The concept is like full full circle takeover empire. Just yeah, we are, we may appear to be nothing, but we are everything. Just love yeah, it. This is the, the Sputnik Corporation owning the world. I mean, yeah. that, that's how it ends, basically. It's, um... Yeah. And in spirit, they definitely did. I mean, of course, the other interesting thing about EMI being involved is famously they were the first people that, that signed the Sex Pistols in a similar flurry of uh, hype and, and, and bidding war. They ultimately dumped them because they were worried about the uh, the effects it would have on their marketing of their other products. I think I think their um, uh, medical scanners at the time they were trying to sell. They didn't want the associations. So and of course it, uh, the Pistols did the the song EMI all about that experience. EMI were the only record record label that Sputnik could possibly have signed with, given all that that kind of uh, history. But yeah, they they certainly at least then seen as the major hitter, especially for a British record lab, and it's multinational kind of company. And so to tell the, the full Sputnik story where the Sputnik Corporation ends up owning EMI records, it's all part of the <laughs> the, the, the same continuum. <laughs> the master plan. Yeah, Tony James's master plan comes to fruition. We've gone longer than I thought we would. <laughs> we have, haven't we? Yeah, we uh... testimony to... Uh to the substantial, insubstantial brilliance of the whole thing. Um, I I guess in closing for me, what I like about this album most is its uniqueness in terms of what the product sounds like if you were looking at it purely from a sort of listening slash musical point of view. Its uniqueness as as a concept and the starting point for the product's end point and the fact that it is of a time and probably more sort of more clever because of of when it was thought up in many ways 
But um, I still think it sounds more like it belongs to 2023 than it did. I would agree. Yeah, no, I would agree. I really would. Testimony to a bunch of things. Like I said, I know it's a weird, it's a deaf thing to say. In fact, it, all, all, of all the albums we've done, mostly because I think probably most of the others people will have heard anyway. But this one, this is the one I'd say. Look, if you want to hear something kind of special, you you may think it's sort of crap. You're going to get a distinct bubblegum about it, possibly. But give it a chance. Let it have a few listens and think about it in the context of everything that's happened since. And um, there's real something very special here. Really special. I, I think the the interesting and important thing to point out about this album: this is in the pre-web era. Mm. The internet was not something that was available to to the public. The web was still 10 years away and they were they were doing things which are now commonplace in the web borrowing wrapping things together in uh, different ways that you've got that kind of um, future aesthetic that notion of electronic and digital communication it's all wrapped up in in there it's quite quite interesting and i think if anyone that's kind of intrigued to know what sputnik might have sounded like in the web age the album pirate space is well worth a a, a listen that's the 2001 yeah album yeah. which is i think it's pretty good actually but it's also got it's it's a lot um it's a lot more heavyweight i should say so so the kind of thin production of this album is uh is not evident on pirate space there's a lot more bass and bottom end and, and sub frequencies in there it's a, you know it's a lot a lot of that kind of heavier uh production interesting stuff cool Last word to you, Greg. <laughs> um, I yes, I just uh, to agree with everything Ian has just said. That this is uh, for me. This has always been uh, an album of the future. Um, I mean, they used to joke; they call themselves the history of the future, and it is. It's it's an album that would work or could work perfectly well now. Um, and when you think that they did this in the mid eighties. It's a, it's a multimedia project, as we understand a multimedia project to be, mm-hmm. before anyone had the faintest idea that that was even a thing, let alone a thing you could sort of make money out of. And there's been a few missteps sort of subsequently, but um, I still think it's hats off to Tony James. He had this vision and pursued it quite single-mindedly. And I think he would probably agree that he helped cock it up himself to a certain extent because yeah. he bought into the the hype it yeah it's just it's i still think it's a cracking album i love it i listen to it uh the only other thing i would say is i've listened to it and i really enjoyed listening to it about 10 years ago more than that 15 years ago zig zig sputnik released their own version of most of the singles that they'd done remastered and extended. I mean, that was the other thing they, they did a lot of, even in the 80s. If your single came out, you went out and bought it because the B-sides and the extended 12 inches were almost different songs. They were throwing so much more stuff in. Yeah. Um, but they have some almost overproduced versions of their song. Not, not overproduced. Some more slickly produced using more modern technology. They've re-recorded a lot of their songs. Um, it's just called the 12-inch collection. Um, but if you can find it, it I, I recommend it just to listen to this is how you would do Flaunt It if you were 20 years later with mm. later technology 
and access to the internet where you can throw even more samples in. Keep an eye out for that. But yes, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's been fun. And we've talked a lot more than I thought. I did think we'd just go, yeah, it goes, da 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 done. Awesome. No, no, thanks for coming on, man. Okay, then. That was Flaunted by Zigzag Sputnik. Uh, thank you for listening, wherever you are, and good night. Good night. Cheers. 